You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 57 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. In the last episode, we looked at how the commanding general of the Union Army, Irvin McDowell, failed to maintain the initiative after the Federal Army seized Matthews Hill, and as a result, the Confederates were given time to put together a defensive line on Henry Hill. You guys will remember from the last show how after the Union soldiers seized Matthews Hill, there were then a couple of unsanctioned, unsupported advances by several federal regiments. They were unsanctioned, and the McDowell didn't order them. Instead, they were undertaken by a couple of officers on their own initiative. But those piecemeal attacks were driven off by the Confederates. Well, the next federal attack was another of those unsupported, unsanctioned assaults that McDowell hadn't ordered, and this attack crashed into the right flank of the newly formed Confederate defensive line on Henry Hill. Y'all will recall how Tyler's Federal Division had been ordered to make a demonstration at the Stone Bridge on the morning of the battle, but that later on, as the fighting on Matthews Hill was reaching its climax, one of Tyler's brigades, the one commanded by William Tecumseh Sherman, had crossed Bull Run at a previously unknown ford above the bridge. Well, Sherman headed for Matthews Hill, but then when Tyler followed, crossing Bull Run with Erasmus Key's brigade, Tyler had Keyes move toward Henry Hill. Coming in from the northeast, Keyes was maneuvering toward the vulnerable Confederate right flank on Henry Hill, and that flank was vulnerable because it was up in the air. That is, it wasn't anchored on any natural terrain feature. About one o'clock, without giving McDowell any notice of what he intended, Tyler ordered Keyes' brigade and a line of battle and sent the 2nd Maine and 3rd Connecticut hurtling toward Henry Hill. The Union assault hit the rightmost regiment in Thomas Jackson's defensive line, the 5th Virginia. Here, Sergeant Horatio Staples of the 2nd Maine describes the Federal attack up the slope of Henry Hill. I can't conscientiously say that our alignment would have suited a West Point drill cadet, but we got to the top, helped and heartened by the lusty cheering of the Connecticut Regiment, then deploying a few hundred yards to our right. Coming to the top of the rise... We saw, just the other side of a dilapidated Virginia fence, a line or two of rebel infantry, and just back of them, or mingled with them, some field pieces. The instant we made our appearance on their premises, they gave us a hearty, howdy-do, in the shape of a volley of musketry slapping our faces. To this very day, I confidently believe the rascals did it on purpose. We gave them five hundred of the same kind of pills— "'Twas the first time we had shot and been shot at in earnest. 
Were we scared? Well, honestly, I never knew. There wasn't time for first sensations. If I had sat right down, then and there, in the most comfortable rocking chair on that hill, and tried to analyze our feelings, I doubt I could have made a logical job of it. There were guns to be fired, and guns to load and fire again. There was a nasty line of grisly gray scoundrels on the other side of that fence to practice real shooting on. Down went our splendid flag. Down went the bearer of it, Sergeant William Dean, shot fatally through the throat, and the flag was on the ground, only for a fraction of a minute, however, for Corporal Moore caught it and held it aloft. Down it went once again, and the brave Corporal never spoke again. Down went another of our three flags, the bearer of that killed. Down went Captain Skinner, commander of Company C, close to the colors. Down went twenty, thirty, forty brave fellows. I said a moment ago that I didn't know what our sensations were. I can tell you what they were getting to be about this part of the fight. It was mad, clear, stark, swearing mad, and some of us were church members. A burning desire to get at the gray rats beyond the fence. Somebody caught up one of the fallen flags. Gus Farnham caught up the other. Meanwhile, we moved slowly forward, loading and firing, while the thin barrels of our ancient muskets got so hot and swollen that it was impossible for ramrods to force the cartridge into them. The rebel infantry sneaked behind their guns. Some of our men were half over the fence, when along came a staff officer with orders for us to retire to the shelter of some rising ground a little to the left. As you can tell from that last part of Sergeant Staple's account, Confederate resistance stiffened and the attack by the 2nd Maine and 3rd Connecticut lost its momentum. The timely arrival of Union reinforcements might have tipped the balance and led to the destruction of Jackson's flank, but although Keyes had two other regiments standing by in reserve, they weren't ordered forward. And so finally, Keyes and Tyler, at about 1.30, lost their nerve, decided to give up the attack, and the northern soldiers who had gone up Henry Hill, including Sergeant Staples, were ordered to come back down. You guys might remember, we mentioned that Daniel Tyler had never been happy about serving under the much younger McDowell, and then the tension between the two officers had been ratcheted up yet another notch after the affair at Blackburn's Ford and Tyler's bungling there. But really, here at Henry Hill, when Tyler failed to notify McDowell that he was sending in a major attack, well, that was just ridiculous. If Tyler had only coordinated with McDowell, there would have been a real opportunity to push the rebels off Henry Hill. But because of Tyler's narrow-mindedness, or incompetence, whichever it was, the opportunity was lost. We mentioned in the last episode that during the time McDowell was dilly-dallying after seizing Matthews Hill, he was content to have his artillery lob some long-distance fire at the Confederates. That Federal artillery was 11 guns in two batteries commanded by a couple of tough old officers from the regular Army, Captain James B. Ricketts and Captain Charles Griffin. They had been carrying on a long-range artillery duel with the Rebel guns on Henry Hill. It was actually an unequal contest, since the Federal guns, being rifled, had the advantage in range and accuracy over the smooth-bore Confederate cannons. But now, at 2 p.m., McDowell was finally ready to issue some orders. But in the supreme, boneheaded move of the battle, 
He was not sending his thousands of waiting infantry forward to assault Henry Hill. No, McDowell was instead going to send forward those two artillery batteries. McDowell told his chief of artillery, Major William Barry, of his desire that Ricketts and Griffin take their guns right up to Henry Hill. McDowell made no mention of infantry support for the batteries. So, Barry rode over to Ricketts and Griffin and gave them their orders, and they, being professional soldiers, prepared to carry them out. But, being professional soldiers, they realized the orders were crazy, and they felt compelled to protest them. Artillery simply didn't spearhead offensive attacks, and besides that, the Federal rifled guns, by moving forward, would give up their range and accuracy advantage over the smoothbore rebel cannon. But both Barry and McDowell confirmed the orders. But at least the guns would have some infantry support after all. In his book, The First Battle of Manassas, An End to Innocence, John Hennessy explains that, quote, If McDowell didn't see the need for infantry to support the artillery, at least Barry did. While Griffin's and Ricketts batteries moved out, Barry rushed about hunting up infantry support. With the help of General Samuel P. Heinzelman, he was able to gather four regiments, the 14th Brooklyn and U.S. Marine Battalion of Porter's Brigade, the 1st Minnesota of W.B. Franklin's Brigade, and the 11th New York of Orlando Wilcox's Brigade. Come on, boys, and show them what New York can do, yelled the officers of the fire zouaves. And with that, remembered one zouave, the pet lambs were led to the slaughter. End quote. And just a couple of footnotes about some of that. First, yes, there were U.S. Marines at the battle, but they were mostly raw recruits, and so First Manassas definitely won't turn out to be the Marine Corps' proudest moment. Second, the 11th New York was known as the Fire Zouaves because they wore that colorful, exotic outfit modeled on the famed French Zouaves, and also because they were recruited largely from New York City volunteer firefighters. They had been Elmer Ellsworth's regiment, and since before his death, the dashing young Ellsworth had been a special friend of Abraham Lincoln's. Other regiments started to refer to the 11th New York as Lincoln's Pet Lambs. Exactly. Well, so anyway, when Captain Griffin again protested to Major Barry about how impractical it was for the artillery to spearhead the Federal assault on Henry Hill, Barry pointed out that the fire zouaves would be advancing and supporting the guns, but Griffin, the old soldier, had zero confidence in the inexperienced New Yorkers and told Barry, I will go, but mark my words, they will not support us. Much of the bitter fighting that will churn back and forth across Henry Hill over the next two hours will be focused on possession of these two Federal artillery batteries that McDowell foolishly ordered forward. Griffin had three rifle guns, 10-pounder parrots, as well as two 12-pounder howitzers, and then Ricketts had half a dozen of the 10-pounder parrots. Ironically, one of the first persons to be killed as a result of McDowell's error in judgment wasn't an infantry soldier or artilleryman, but the old widow Henry. As Ricketts' battery rushed up the slope of Henry Hill and deployed, they suddenly had a clear view of Jackson's defensive line about 350 yards away. But closer still was the home of 85-year-old Judith Carter Henry, and Confederate skirmishers were using the building as cover. 
When those rebels fired on his battery as it was unlimbering, Ricketts, not knowing there were still civilians inside the dwelling, said he, quote, turned my guns upon the house and literally riddled it, end quote. The Confederate soldiers immediately fled to safety, but the widow Henry was not so lucky. In his book, Donnybrook, the Battle of Bull Run, 1861, David Detzer explains that, quote, Living with her were her semi-invalid son, John, 56, and her unmarried daughter, Miss Ellen, 54. A young African-American woman, a slave named Lucy, owned by a local minister, Alexander Compton, had been caring for the feeble Mrs. Henry, and she, too, may have been living in the place. When the artillery duel began between Imboden's guns and the Rhode Island battery, Mrs. Henry's adult children wanted to move their mother, but she stubbornly resisted. She changed her mind, however, after one or two Yankee shells banged through her roof. Her children and Lucy picked her up, using her mattress, and started off toward the home of Reverend Compton, about a mile away. But as they staggered along with their burden, the cannon fire seemed to get worse, and she, now terrified, begged them to take her back home. They did so. End quote. Well, it was after that, after she was back in her home, that a shell from one of Ricketts' guns slammed through the wall of Mrs. Henry's bedroom. Her daughter, who had sought shelter in the fireplace, was deafened by the blast, and the slave girl, Lucy, was hit by a shell fragment and afterwards walked with a limp. While lying in bed, Judith Carter Henry was wounded in several places, and she died shortly thereafter. She had the unfortunate distinction of being the only civilian casualty of the First Battle of Manassas. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As Ricketts drove off the Confederate sharpshooters at the Henry House, Griffin came up with his guns, and together the two Federal batteries of 11 cannon faced the 13 Rebel guns, now just a little over 300 yards away. A ferocious artillery duel commenced, but by moving up to Henry Hill as per McDowell's orders, the Federal rifle guns had given up their long-range advantage, and now they were well within range of not only the Rebel smoothbore cannon, but were also dangerously exposed to the enemy infantry. But as we mentioned before, Major Barry had managed to round up some infantry support, and it wasn't long before the 1st Minnesota and the 11th New York moved forward and advanced up the western slope of Henry Hill to cover the exposed Federal guns. 
but then unexpectedly the advance of the Union regiments brought them face to face with the 33rd Virginia, which was holding the left end of Jackson's defensive line. And just like we saw in last week's episode, there was again confusion on the Federal side as to the identity of the men they had stumbled upon. So to settle the matter, 3rd Division Commander Samuel Heintzelman rode out between the lines to ascertain whether the strangers were friend or foe. The following account is from Private John Castler of the 33rd Virginia, and at one point in it, it helps if you know that both the 1st Minnesota and 11th New York Both federal regiments happen to be wearing bright red shirts. So, this is Private John Castler, Company A, 33rd Virginia. Quote, The enemy, flushed with victory, pushed on, never dreaming what was lying just behind the brow of the hill in the pines. There seemed to be a lull in the firing just at this time, and Sergeant James P. Daly, of my company, walked up to the brow of the hill, but soon returned with the exclamation, Boys, there is the prettiest sight from the top of the hill you ever saw. They are coming up on the other side in four ranks, and all dressed in red. When we heard that, I, with several others, jumped up and started to see, but Colonel Cummings ordered us to stay in ranks, and Daly remarked, We will see them soon enough. Sure enough, in a few seconds, the head of the column made its appearance, with three officers on horseback in front. In a few minutes, they spied us lying there, and I heard one of the officers say, Hello, what men are these? At that moment, some of our men, who evidently had the buck fever, commenced without orders, firing some scattering shots. The enemy then poured a volley into us, but as we were lying down, the balls went over our heads, harmless. End quote. And I didn't know this, but buck fever, according to Rich and to the online dictionary, is the nervous excitement felt by an inexperienced hunter at the first sight of game. Now see, that's why it's good two of us do the podcast. I'm from western Pennsylvania, where the first day of buck season is a sacred holiday, so I just assumed everyone knows what buck fever is. But anyway. But anyway. The Yankee troops Castler describes were members of either the Fire Zouaves or the 1st Minnesota, and because Jackson had deployed his Virginia Brigade on the reverse slope of Henry Hill, the advancing Federal units were unaware of the rebels' presence until they stumbled upon the Virginians who were lying down. And maybe we better also explain this deal with the reverse slope. Well, basically, if you're standing at the foot of a hill, looking up toward the top, what can you see? Well, you can only see up to the crest of the hill, right? You can't see what's on the other side, on the reverse slope of the hill. And even as you hike up the hill, you can still only ever see what's on your side of it. What's on the other side of the crest is a mystery. Well, back in the Napoleonic Wars, one of the Duke of Wellington's favorite tactics when he was fighting the French was that whenever he could, he would position his men just on the other side of the crest of a hill on the reverse slope, so that his men would be concealed from the French and sheltered from cannon fire and whatnot, and Wellington would even have his men lie down. And so then, as the French came marching up the hill, just as they reached the crest, there just on the other side would be a line of British infantry that suddenly rose up and poured volley after volley of musketry into them at point-blank range, and then the British would finish things up with a bayonet charge. And here at Manassas, Brigadier General Thomas Jonathan Jackson, since he was a West Pointer, 
certainly knew all about the Duke of Wellington's reverse slope defense. And so that's exactly how Jackson expertly deployed his Virginians, even having them lie down. Now earlier, Shanks Evans had tried much the same thing on Matthews Hill, but it didn't work out so well for him. But here it worked just fine for Jackson on Henry Hill. Jackson even anticipated his men sweeping the Yankees from the field with a bayonet charge. Remember what Jackson said to B? Jackson had said, Sir, we will give them the bayonet. Well, so there you go. The reverse slope defense, the bayonet charge, the Duke of Wellington. Now you know the rest of the story. But to get back to the action, we still have the 33rd Virginia facing the 1st Minnesota and the 11th New York. But when the Virginians stood up and blasted the Yankees, it so discombobulated the Union soldiers that they very quickly broke and fell back. The Confederates' fire also hit the Marines, who had taken up a position just behind Ricketts' guns. The Marines immediately broke and fled back down Henry Hill. As hundreds of Union soldiers and Marines retreated pell-mell back down the hill, Ricketts rode among them, yelling, For God's sake, boys, save my guns! But Ricketts' pleas fell on deaf deaf ears as the panicky mass of men ignored him and headed for the Manassas-Sudley Road. For some members of the 11th New York, things turned from bad to worse once they arrived back down at the road, since just as they reached it, Jeb Stewart and 150 Confederate cavalrymen arrived on the scene. Jackson had just ordered Stewart to screen the flanks of his defensive line on Henry Hill, so Stewart had split his small command in two, sending 150 men to guard Jackson's right flank, while he, Stewart, led the others around to the left. As he was riding up, Stuart saw broken infantry ahead, fleeing from the fight. Thinking they were Confederates, Stuart rode toward them, shouting to them not to run. But then he saw a U.S. flag and realized his mistake. Stuart quickly rode back to his men and ordered them to charge. One Southern cavalryman later said Jeb Stuart launched them at the Yankees, quote, like an arrow from a bow, end quote. The startled men of the 11th New York frantically formed into a ragged line and prepared to meet the Confederates, but the rebel horsemen charged right through them. Mounted on his horse Comet, Lieutenant William Blackford of the 1st Virginia Cavalry took part in the charge, and he later recalled that, quote, The tremendous impetus of horses at full speed broke through and scattered their line like chaff before the wind. As the scarlet line appeared through the smoke, when within a couple of horses' lengths of them, I leaned down with my carbine cocked, thumb on hammer and forefinger on trigger, and fixed my eye on a tall fellow I saw would be the one my course would place in the right position for the carbine, while the man next to him, in front of the horse, I would have to leave to Comet. I then plunged the spurs into Comet's flanks, and he evidently thought I wanted him to jump over this strange-looking wall I was riding him at, for he rose to make the leap but he was too close and going too fast to rise higher than the breast of the man, and he struck him full on the chest, rolling him over and over under his hoofs and knocking him about ten feet backwards. As Comet rose to make the leap, I leaned down from the saddle, rammed the muzzle of the carbine into the stomach of my man, and pulled the trigger. I could not help feeling a little sorry for the fellow as he lifted his handsome face to mine while he tried to get his bayonet up to meet me, but he was too slow for the carbine blew a hole as big as my arm clear through him. 
On the receiving end of Stewart's thundering charge, Private Harrison H. Cummings of the 11th New York left this account of his experience. Quote, that which was called the Black Horse Cavalry made the charge. It was at first supposed that they were of the Union Army, but we soon found out our mistake. Colonel Farnham was mortally wounded, the Major and the Adjutant unhorsed, and many of our regiment were either killed or wounded. Our first sergeant was badly wounded and taken prisoner along with a great many others. Our regiment was in a confused state, having no head to direct it, and every man was for himself. In going back, I was stopped by a cavalryman who made to strike at me with his saber, but thanks to my musket and the position in which I held it at the time, I was spared to be here to tell my little story. I was ridden down by this same cavalryman who seemed to be bent upon my extinction, but fate decreed otherwise. As he turned to leave, I noticed the 14th Regiment of New York coming towards us. How I got off of that field I am at a loss to tell, but I did get away and made for the woods, the same, I suppose, that we came from. Quote. As Private Cummings' account indicates, the fire zouaves were thrown into disorder by the Confederate cavalry charge, and while officers managed to rally and reform some of the New Yorkers, a number of terrified soldiers, Cummings among them, took to their heels. While it was no doubt an exhilarating experience for the Confederate cavalrymen and a terrifying experience for the Union soldiers, when all was said and done, there were actually only a relative handful of men killed or seriously wounded in the clash, although both the fire zouaves and also the first Minnesota were now routed and disorganized and effectively out of the battle. But up on Henry Hill, the guns still roared, as the artillery duel between Ricketts and Griffin's batteries and the Confederate cannon continued. Other federal troops were rushing to support Ricketts and Griffin's guns on Henry Hill, but in the meantime, the two beleaguered batteries continued to fight almost alone on the hill. Ricketts and Griffin were suffering in the close-range artillery duel, but they were fortunate that the rebel infantry didn't advance immediately after driving off the fire zouaves in the first Minnesota. But Jackson's line on Henry Hill was being gradually reinforced and extended as Joseph E. Johnston forwarded Confederate troops to the scene of the fighting. Johnston dispatched the small battalion of ex-Virginia governor, now Colonel William Extra Billy Smith, to a position on Jackson's left. Johnston also directed the 6th North Carolina, fresh off the train at Manassas Junction, to another spot on Jackson's left. Those units were joined by small bands of disorganized but determined soldiers from the Matthews Hill fight who were still eager to lick the Yankees and had been gathered up by Beauregard and other officers. And it was sometime in the midst of this phase of the battle that Bernard B. was still attempting to gather together his scattered forces in order to reinforce Jackson's line, and in so doing, B. unknowingly helped create a legend. In his book, A Single Grand Victory, The First Campaign and Battle of Manassas, Ethan Rafuse writes, quote, As the guns roared, General B. rode among the still scattered remnants of his command. Spotting a familiar mass of troops, he rode over to it and began a conversation that created a nickname that would fire southern hearts for years to come. B. initiated it by inquiring as to the identity of the unit, to which one of their officers replied, Why, General, don't you know your own men? 
This is what is left of the 4th Alabama. After expressing consternation at this being the only part of his brigade he could find, B asked his men, Will you follow me back to where the fighting is going on? Yes, General, one determined man replied. We'll go wherever you lead and do whatever you say. To this, B responded by dramatically pointing to his left and saying the most famous words that would be uttered on any Civil War battlefield. Yonder stands Jackson like a stone wall. Let's go to his assistance. End quote. Just what B said and the circumstances under which he said it have been matters of some controversy over the years. In the version Rich just shared, Ethan Rafew sticks to John Hennessy's findings regarding the incident, and Hennessy's research does seem to offer the last word on the subject. He shows that the story of Jackson's naming is based on only four known eyewitness accounts of the incident. And while the accounts vary as to some details, they clearly provide a context for B's legendary exclamation. One of those eyewitness accounts was left by Sergeant Major Robert T. Coles of the 4th Alabama. Coles wrote that, quote, It was now about two o'clock. General B., very much depressed at the unfortunate turn of affairs, then proceeded to collect his scattered forces. Riding up to the 4th Alabama, he inquired, What regiment is this? Captain Richard Clark, or Captain Porter King, quickly replied, Why, General, don't you know your own men? This is what is left of the 4th Alabama. After stating that this was the only part of his command he had been fortunate enough to find, he then said, Come with me and go yonder, where Jackson stands like a stone wall. As soon as the water detail which had been sent out returned and the men had satisfied their thirst, the regiment fell into line and followed General B. to the support of General Jackson. While getting into position, Lieutenant John Pelham, commanding Albertus's battery, cut the regiment at the center to pass through. When the two battalions joined, it was learned that our beloved and gallant leader, General B., had fallen severely wounded. End quote. As Sergeant Major Cole's account indicates, B. was shot in the abdomen and mortally wounded shortly after uttering his famous words. So unfortunately, no one ever had the opportunity to ask him just what he said or when he said it. But like Tracy pointed out a minute ago, John Hennessy's research regarding the incident does seem to offer the last word on the subject. Some accounts had B. saying, rally round the Virginians, and making that declaration much earlier in the battle. But those words appear to be a later myth, and the timing is wrong, since B. wasn't actually rallying anyone. And then there was also some conjecture that B. didn't even mean his remark as a compliment, but that he was disparaging Jackson for standing idly by like a stone wall while B's men were doing the fighting. But again, that doesn't make much sense, if one considers the timing of B's interaction with the 4th Alabama, and also, as Sergeant Major Cole's account makes apparent, the context of B's statement is pretty clear, in that B was obviously making a positive reference to the steadfastness of Jackson's defensive line. But really, regardless of how it happened, here on the battlefield at Manassas, Thomas Jonathan Jackson had just acquired a pretty cool nickname, one that would become one of the most famous in military history. At any rate, we're actually just glad that from this point on in the podcast, we can finally refer to him as Stonewall Jackson. 
If we shift our attention back to Ricketts and Griffin's batteries slugging it out with the Confederate artillery, we find that the Federal guns were getting hammered. The 33rd New York had moved up to support the guns, but it stopped behind Griffin's position and the New Yorkers lay down to avoid the worst of the enemy fire. By this time, Ricketts' battery had been knocked about so badly it was nearly put out of action. And so with all of that happening, Griffin decided something more needed to be done if the Confederate line was to be broken. So Griffin ordered Lieutenant Charles Hazlitt to continue working the three rifled guns while he personally took the two howitzers back to the Sudley Road. Griffin would then swing around to a position from which he hoped to pulverize the left end of the enemy line. But remember we said a few moments ago that the left end of Stonewall Jackson's defensive line was being reinforced and extended as more Confederate troops came up to the scene of the fighting. Well, Griffin had just made his move with those two howitzers and fired off a couple of rounds when, at about three o'clock, an unidentified force of infantry moved out of some woods and approached his position. That unidentified force of infantry was in fact some Confederate troops who were coming up to reinforce and extend Jackson's left. They were led by ex-Virginia Governor, but now Colonel, William Extra Billy Smith. Although some of the approaching soldiers were wearing blue uniforms, others were wearing gray, and still others were in civilian clothes, and Griffin was certain the force was hostile, so he ordered the howitzers loaded with canister and prepared to blast the approaching men. But then, just as Griffin was about to fire, Major Barry rode up, and he told Griffin to hold his fire that the approaching infantry were his battery support. Astounded that Barry would think so, Griffin replied, They are Confederates, as certain as the world they are Confederates. But Barry was unyielding. He was sure the men were a regiment that Heinzelman had sent to support the Federal guns. Griffin reluctantly deferred to a superior officer's judgment, and he ordered his men to hold their fire. So once again, confusion over whether a unit was friend or foe came into play, and this time with disastrous consequences for the cannoneers manning the two Federal guns. The Confederates, led by Extra Billy Smith, advanced to within 70 yards of Griffin's howitzers, and then they stopped and delivered an absolutely devastating volley at the Yankees. Griffin would say of that first enemy volley, quote, That was the last of us. We were all cut down. End quote. One Confederate recalled that the Federal battery seemed to have simply, quote, disintegrated. It seemed every horse and man of the battery just lay down and died, end quote. With the Federal gunners stunned and staggered by what had just happened, the Confederate infantry charged forward. They easily drove off the surviving Yankees and took possession of the two guns. In his book, A Single Grand Victory, Ethan Rafuse says of this action, quote, Although no one knew it at the time, the Federal offensive on Henry Hill had passed its culminating point. After the capture of Griffin's guns, the question was no longer whether the Confederates could hold the line of Henry Hill, but whether McDowell could figure out how to regain and hold on to the foothold established by Ricketts and Griffin's batteries. And with Confederate reinforcements arriving by the minute, time was everything for the Federals. For the sake of the Union cause, the Grand Offensive simply had to achieve something more than a stalemate. In order to be victorious, the Federals had to drive the enemy from the field in a manner so decisive as to leave no doubt in the minds of Americans, North and South, as to who had triumphed. 
By 3 p.m., the chances of achieving such a victory on Henry Hill had dramatically declined. The tide of battle had turned. End quote. And the point where the tide of battle has turned seems like a good place to start wrapping up this episode. There's yet some tough fighting that will be centered around those federal guns still up on Henry Hill, and then there's the fighting over on Chin Ridge, and then, of course, there's the collapse and retreat of the Union Army. So the battle isn't over yet, not by a long shot, but we'll wait until next week to continue with the story. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is a biography of Stonewall Jackson by James I. Robertson, Jr. Yep. Uh, After the battle here at Manassas, Jackson wrote to his wife, saying, God made my brigade more instrumental than any other in repulsing the main attack. Now, we'll do a more in-depth look at Stonewall Jackson's life uh, sometime around when we get to his Valley Campaign in 1862 with the podcast. But for right now, uh, if learning about how he got his famous nickname has whetted your appetite to learn more about him, and you'd like to pick up a good biography, well, you can't go wrong with Stonewall Jackson, The Man, The Soldier, The Legend, by James I. Robertson, Jr. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. We want to thank Greg B. and Jeff K. for their donations this past week, and thanks for the support, gentlemen. And we also want to thank Spiritwood Music for permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, which is the music you hear at the beginning and end of each and every episode of the podcast. And thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time as we continue with the First Battle of Manassas. But until then, take care. And thanks, everyone. Bye.